Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles, if you have them, to the New Testament, to uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, and as most of you know, we're in a series right now called Blueprint. It's a study of this letter written by uh, the Apostle Paul somewhere around 60 AD. And it's a letter in which he addresses, you know, really what it means to be a Christian. And then he goes to great lengths to explain as best he can uh, God's overarching purpose for us, uh, for our lives as individuals and as the church. In fact, last week we um, explored what Paul was getting at when he says, in Christ we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan, literally the blueprint uh, of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And uh, Paul's use of that deterministic type language prompted our discussion on, on the matter of, you know, do we as human beings have free will with our choices deciding an unfixed future, or is there a predetermined plan we cannot escape? And we concluded the answer is yes. It's a both and kind of deal. And if you missed that discussion, uh, you need to go online and listen because we don't have time to reopen that can of worms. So uh, we're gonna move on, move on down the road here. But suffice it to say, in the statements that we looked at last week, I mean, Paul clearly presses the idea that God has a plan uh, that all of humanity and all of history is part of that plan, and Jesus is at the center of it. Uh, he says, you know, in Christ we were chosen, we were, having, we were predestined according to this plan. Then he goes on in verse 12, and he says, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance unto the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now this section uh, of Paul's letter, uh, for me, really demonstrates how he wants his listeners to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. If I ask you, you know, are you a Christian, there are basically only three ways you can answer. Yes, I am. No, I'm not. Or I'm not sure. But whatever the case may be, Paul's comments here help everybody because if you're not sure about your faith, he offers a way to figure it out. If you claim to be a Christian, he provides a way to evaluate the legitimacy of that claim. And if you say, I am not a Christian, he offers a way to be certain you know what it is you're missing. My contention is that a lot of people in our culture today who reject Christianity uh, think they understand what it is, but they really don't. I mean, they view it, they view it in terms of you know, legalistic um, rules and, and empty religious rituals and commands, do's, don'ts, wills and won'ts. And you've got to you know, somehow prove yourself to be good enough, a good enough person. And they're just not interested in that. And if that's what they think, if that's what you think, then you end up rejecting Christianity based on a false understanding. So with that in mind, how does Paul define what it means to be a Christian? And what stuck out to me, uh, particularly in the middle of this section, in verse 13, we read how Paul talks about uh, believers in Jesus being marked in him with something specific, right? But the more I studied it, the more I looked at it, the more I realized that in the, in the greater context, Paul actually mentions a number of things that identify or mark true believers. What are those things? Paul says, true Christians, genuine believers in Jesus, are first of all marked by truth. 
He says, you were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Translation, Christian faith doesn't, doesn't begin with you doing something. It starts with you hearing something, truth. Now, truth, can, uh, truth in our culture today is, is rather controversial subject uh, because uh, for the past 30 years or so, really since the mid-1980s, postmodernism has dominated our cultural landscape. And postmodernism rep- represents a view of life that says knowledge and truth are the products of unique systems of, of social, historical, political discourse and interpretation and are therefore contextual and constructed. Uh, a more succinct way of putting it is postmodernism says there is no such thing as absolute truth. We just make it up as we go. Your truth is yours, your truth is yours, so forth. So all discourses uh, are equally valid. No matter what you claim, your claim is no better or truer than anyone else's claim. And the reason Western um, culture so readily embraced this kind of thinking was in a desire to combat oppression. Thinking being, you know, if, if, uh, if some one person or one group has the truth, then, then you know, that tends to marginalize and, and, and subordinate other people and other groups who don't have it. So in order, to, in order to level the playing field, so to speak, in order to avoid and overcome oppression and give everyone equal voice, we have to declare no one, no one can say what is right and what is wrong. All truth is relative. Now, I realize that's a rather simple summary of a complex social philosophy, but it's important you understand it, and it's important you, you know that postmodern thinking is in decline. Uh, in fact, a couple years ago, one of the most prominent museums in the world, uh, Victorian Albert Museum in London, opened a, a historical retrospective exhibit called Postmodernism, Style and Subversion, 1970 to 1990. Now, why, why was that significant? It's significant because... Uh, It represented sort of the elite intellectual academic community admitting that postmodernism is done. It's over. It's past. It's a failed philosophy. In an article titled Postmodernism is Dead, noted British author Edward Docks explained it this way. He explains what happens. He said, you know, in an effort to fight oppression, over time another difficulty was created. Because postmodernism attacks everything, a mood of confusion and uncertainty began to grow and flourish until in recent years it became ubiquitous, which means pervasive. And suddenly the academics started to realize that you know, if we deprivilege all positions, then we can assert no position. Here's my Reiki translation. If there's no such thing as objective, absolute truth, then no one can criticize anything. You can't criticize anything, you can't condemn anything, you can't oppose anything, you can't fight against anything, including injustice, racism, etc. You can't. You have no moral grounds by which to do that. And so brought to its logical conclusion, postmodernism doesn't eliminate oppression, it just leads to moral and social chaos. You guys follow that? Over 100 years ago, 1908, G.K. Chesterton, he's a Christian writer, thinker, He saw all this coming. He saw it on the horizon, and he wrote this book titled Orthodoxy. And in it, he says this. He says, the new rebel is a skeptic and will not entirely trust anything. He has no loyalty, therefore he can never really be a revolutionist. 
And the fact that he doubts everything gets in the way when he wants to denounce anything. For all denunciation implies a moral doctrine of some kind, and the modern revolutionist doubts not only the institution he denounces, but the doctrine by which he denounces it. By rebelling against everything, he has lost his right to rebel against anything. And Chesterton was spot on, and that's what's happened. See, the academic elites of 21st or 20th century Western culture thought the idea they thought the idea of, of there being no moral, uh, no, no absolute truth, they thought that idea would be liberating, but really it, it's not liberating. Ultimately, it means you can't object to anything. You can't say anything is right, you can't say anything is wrong. And that just isn't realistic in our world. But while the experts admit postmodernism is essentially done, no one has seemed to tell, uh, told the, the, gave the, that information to the general public because we're still operating as if, if, it's, if it's a valid philosophy. In an article titled, Postmodernism, Dead But Not Gone, American journalist Colin Hansen writes, no obituary appeared in the New York Times. Television newscasts offered no tribute, but make no mistake, postmodernism is dead. Even those who could foresee this end could do nothing to prevent its suicide. Demise was built into its very DNA. In other words, he's saying, postmodernism was a philosophy born to fail because there is absolute truth in this universe. There is. And academics are slowly acknowledging that. Um, but the idea of there being no truth is so ingrained in our, in our cultural thinking you got to wonder, will, will the majority of our public ever, ever realize that it's a failed philosophy? I don't know. But here's the point. Christianity has always affirmed absolute truth. Always. I mean, that's what the gospel is. Gospel meaning good news. That's what it's all about, right? It's about truth of what's happened in history. And that's where Christianity differs from religion because religion is primarily, primarily about what you can do for God. Christianity is news about what God and Jesus has done for you. Paid the penalty for human sin and rebellion, and by grace through faith in Christ, offers forgiveness and life eternal. Christianity doesn't, it doesn't start with you doing, it starts by you hearing the truth, understanding it, embracing it, believing it. And when that happens, when you believe, Paul says, you become a person marked by hope. He talks about, in verse 12, he talks about who, you know, we who were the first to hope in Christ. And the Greek uh, term translated hope here uh, carries a lot stronger uh, nuance to it than, than our English word. Because for, oh, for us, hope has sort of become, yeah, it's become kind of wishful thinking. You know, um, we, we wish something to be true. We wish that something's going to happen. I'm not sure it's going to happen. I'm hoping it will. I'm hoping the Bears might win one game this year. You know, I'm not sure. Might, maybe. I don't know. The Greek term carries a much more forceful nuance. It's much more forceful. It represents a decisive confidence, a life-shaping certainty about the future. In other words, real hope impacts the present. It changes the way we live. Does it? I find it fascinating how uh, irreligious people in our culture today uh, feel very free and, very, and are very quick to announce how they don't believe in God. There is no God. 
There's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no afterlife. There, when you're dead, you're dead, that's it. You're rotten in the ground. There's no such thing as truth. There's no such thing as right and wrong. There's no, there's no meaning to our existence. The sun's going to burn out, everybody's going to burn up, and we're all going to be gone. And yet they don't, they don't really seem to think through the practical implication of those beliefs. There's an inconsistency with them. Um, there was a British author and playwright named uh, Somerset Maugham who wrote a book titled On Human Bondage. It was very popular. And, and in it, he talks about this whole inconsistency. And Maugham wasn't necessarily a believer, but he, he was a good observer of human nature. And uh, he said, look, if a person puts aside the existence of God and survival after life as too doubtful to have any impact on one's behavior, one has to make up one's mind as to the use of life. If death ends all, if I have neither to hope for good nor fear evil, I must ask myself, what am I here for? And how in these circumstances must I conduct myself? Now the answer is plain, he says, but it is so unpalatable that most people will not face it. They won't face it. There is no meaning for life, and thus life has no meaning. You see what Mon was getting at, what he was trying to point out. He's trying to say that, look, those who say there is no God and that we are just accidents of biology, freaks of nature, nothing more than a bag of chemicals obeying chemical and physical laws, uh, there's no meaning to the universe, there's no right or wrong, good or evil, yet they live every day as if the opposite is true. They live every day as if all life does matter, as if human beings do have intrinsic value, as if our existence does have meaning, as if there is a right and wrong and a good and evil, as if there are causes in this world that we should live and die for. You know, outspoken atheist Richard Dawkins is a prime example. He adamantly claims and argues that there is no right, there is no wrong, there is no good, there is no evil, there is no, there is no reason, there is no purpose to our existence. And yet he runs around teaching, lecturing, writing, going on TV for appearances as if his life and his opinion matter. Yet by his own philosophy, they don't. They're insignificant. And it seems to me secular hopelessness would keep a person from giving a rip about anything. Arguing that life doesn't matter and then living as if it does is a logical inconsistency. But... An inconsistency also seems to exist within our churches among Christians. I mean, have we thought through the practical implication of what we say we believe? That God exists, a creator God does in fact exist, that he loves us, he cares about us, that we have intrinsic value because we're created in his image, we reflect his image, that there is right and there is wrong and there is good and there is evil and that our lives have purpose and they have meaning and by divine grace, in and through Jesus, there is life after death. Do we truly believe that? Is that your hope? And is that de decisive confidence shaping how you live every day, what you do, how you do it? Or is there an inconsistency? Paul says genuine Christians are marked by truth, they're marked by hope. And he says that, that what that also means is that they're marked by praise. In three times in 12 verses, Paul uses the phrase, to the praise of his glorious grace, verse 6, to the praise of his glory, verse 7, to the praise of his glory, verse 14. 
And we, we talked a little bit about this in week one of the series, so I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but Paul's point is that if and when you put your faith in Jesus, I mean, you truly come to know and embrace and experience the grace and forgiveness of God and, and his guarantee of eternal life, that whole reality, all of that becomes absolutely glorious to you, overwhelming to you. The, 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 the incredible beauty and goodness of God, the wonder of his, of his love captures your mind and it captures your heart. And in understanding what's been done for you, you can't help but praise him for his goodness, his greatness, his grace. Can't help it. Annie Dillard is a Pulitzer Prize winning author who in her book, Teaching a Stone to Talk, sort of admits that when she looks at the Christian church, she doesn't necessarily see people who have a true sense of God's glory. She just doesn't really see that. She says, you know, we get together on Sunday morning, it's, it's, it, we become like the old drinking song. You know, we're here because we're here because we're here because we're here. Just going through some religious motions. So she asked the question, she says, why do, why do people in church seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute? Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are like children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. Do you see what she's saying? She's saying, look, if we in the church really believe what we say we believe about God Almighty, it should impact our lives. At the very least, she says, you know, our response to him, our love, our reverence, our joy, our excitement, our gratitude for who God is and what he has done, it should impassion our worship and our praise. At the very least, it should. Does it? Are we going just through motions? Annie Dillard asks a very, I mean, a very serious and probing question. Do we have the foggiest idea of the power we invoke? In his letter to the Ephesian Christians church, Paul's saying, hey, when you come to truly know and you believe in Jesus and you experience the, the glorious grace of God, man, you can't help but acknowledge it. You can't, you can't help but talk about it, sing about it, describe it, tell others about it, and, and with impassioned joy, praise it. Praise him. And if you don't share that intense need to express yourself about God and worship God, I wonder how great and beautiful you really think he is and whether or not you've experienced his glorious grace. True believers in Jesus are marked by praise. They're also marked by love. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned this um, on week one, how Paul played a significant role in establishing the church in Ephesus. He lived there about two years. Uh, but scholars agree by the time he wrote this letter, he hadn't been there in probably about six years. And, and so the church had grown exponentially. But apparently Paul was getting... Um, he was receiving updates and reports on what was happening among the believers in Ephesus. And so when he writes them, he says, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. 
And the Greek term Paul uses for love here refers to an unconditional love, a love that transcends circumstances. It's an active thing. It's an active thing. It's a love that serves regardless of how we feel. It's indiscriminate. It's gracious. It's, 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 it's generous. It's forgiving. It's merciful. It's caring. It's a, it's a sacrificial type love that's, that is radical and relentless. And notice what Paul links this love to. He links it to faith. Faith in Jesus, right? Say, so is that link significant? It is significant. Paul is saying, when a person experiences the unconditional, generous, forgiving, merciful, sacrificial, relentless love of God through faith in Jesus, it changes you. It changes you. It transforms you into a more unconditional and indiscriminately loving person. Basically, you become more and more and more like Jesus. Is that happening to us? Is that happening? You know, I do a lot of reading, and I read all kinds of stuff. Um, you know, and I see, these days I see articles and blogs and books and posts and tweets being written all the time by Christians talking about how we need to love our enemies and we need to love those who are different and we need to love the world around us. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. Before we ever get to that point, we've got to love one another. I mean, Paul, Paul commends the Christians in Ephesus for what? For their love, their unconditional love. For who? For all of God's people. In other words, he's saying, for your love for one another is outstanding. And let's stop kidding ourselves. I mean, let's be realistic and let's just be honest. If we can't love one another in the church, what chance is there of us loving those outside the church? Slim to none, I would say. This week I was wondering, you know, if Paul were around today and he, he, were, he was receiving reports about us, apart from you, you know, what would, what would those reports say about us? And how would he respond? How would he write us? Would he commend us for our love? For all of God's people here in the church? Not just those in the church you know, you're, you're, you're comfortable with or you like, but all of God's people? Does our love compel us to give generously for the good of the church and its mission? Does it? Does love compel us to sacrifice our time and energy for the benefit of others? Does our love compel us to encourage those around us? Does love compel us to forgive others who maybe have let us down, disappointed us, offended us somehow maybe? Let me tell you something. In, in over 28 years of pastoral ministry, I've seen a lot of people in the church who consider themselves mature Christians and yet, yet, yet remain some of the most angry, harsh, vengeful, critical, judgmental, unforgiving individuals you could ever imagine. And I just don't understand it. I just don't understand how it could be so. That is not Christian maturity. That is certainly not love. And it is most certainly not anything like Jesus. You know, we talk about discipleship as Christians. You know what discipleship is? Becoming more like Jesus. 
It's not about information. Is there someone in the church, is there someone among God's people you're refusing to love for whatever reason? Maybe they look different from you or whatever. They dress differently, but you're refusing to love them because of that. Or you're, you're refusing to encourage them, forgive them, be kind to them, merciful to them, serve them. How dare you? How dare you refuse to love others unconditionally when God has loved you that way? Are you better than God? Am I? Paul says anyone who puts his or her faith in Jesus, man, they, they will love unconditionally. They, they will be unmistakably marked by love. You know why? Because he says genuine believers are marked with the Spirit of God who makes love, hope, and everything else possible. Think about it. Paul says, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Now, let me tell you something. There, there, there is so much theology crammed into this statement. We could, we could spend five weeks unpacking it, and I know we've got about five minutes left. So let's, let's try and focus on the big picture here, Okay. Paul's saying that when you believe in Jesus, I mean seriously make a commitment and, and legitimately believe the Holy Spirit enters your life and experience. Or Jesus put it this way, the Spirit will live with you and be in you. That's the promise Paul's referencing here. And keep in mind, we're not talking about some magical force exerted on you or some impersonal energy surrounding you or some supernatural assistant following you around in order to fulfill all of your self-serving demands. Mm -mm. No, we're talking about the spirit of God himself coming and indwelling you, becoming personally, intimately connected with you, mind, heart, body, soul, forever. And when that happens, you're marked with a seal, Paul says. In the ancient uh, world, this term seal was often used uh, of hot wax impressed with a signet ring on a, on a document indicating um, royal ownership. Or sometimes it was used of tattooing slaves. Sometimes it was used of branding animals. It was all about marking something or someone to authenticate ownership. Paul says, for every believer, the indwelling presence of God's spirit is our seal in the truest sense of the word. His presence is the mark of divine ownership. We are God's possession, as Paul puts it, and his spirit is an irrevocable deposit guaranteeing our inheritance to come, our redemption, eternal life. So, you know, it's a pretty big spiritual deal. The next question, at least this is the final question, is okay, well, how do we know if that has happened? I mean, how do we know for sure if we've been marked with this seal indicating we're God's eternal possession? How do we know if, if we have this divine deposit guaranteeing our inheritance? How? I mean, how do we know for sure we're filled with God's Spirit? How do we know this? And where exactly does the Spirit dwell in you? In your brain? Over near your heart, your liver, your kidneys? Where is he? I don't think we can ever fully understand how that works. Never fully comprehend how the spiritual realm operates because our idea of space and time is so limited by our finite humanness. But what I do know is this, Jesus promised, and when you put your faith in him, the spirit of God comes 
and indwells you. When that happens, here's how you know. God's spirit begins to transform you from the inside out. And that's why Paul's comments here are so helpful in determining the legitimacy of one's faith because he's essentially saying Christians, genuine believers in Jesus are marked. They're marked with God's indwelling spirit, which in turn then means you're a person marked by love, by praise, by hope, and truth. May we be a marked people today. Let's pray. Our Father, it is so hard for us to um, see inconsistencies in our own lives. It's easy to see them in others. It's easy for us in the church to look at the world and and those who say, I don't believe in, in a God. I don't believe that we are created in anyone's image. We're just evolved animals, and yet they live as if the opposite is true. It's easy for us to see those inconsistencies and point our fingers at them. And yet we miss the inconsistencies in our own lives where we in the church come and say that we believe in you, the creator God, and your love and your grace and your goodness and all these things and then then live our lives as, as if you don't matter. We live out this inconsistency like tourists brainless tourists touring the Almighty, just going through the motions. I pray today, Lord, that we would gain this understanding and grasp of the power we invoke, of the God, you're the God we worship, creator of all things, our creator, lover of our souls, who in spite of our brokenness and rebellion entered history to save us by grace. May the overwhelming reality of that penetrate not just our brains, but our hearts. Where we can't live, we can't live without singing about it. We can't live without talking about it. We can't live without expressing our gratitude to you. We pray that would be true. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing, shall we? So I want to thank you for being with us today. It was been an interesting week here. Um, you know, this week, uh, on Monday, Kim Whetstone, one of our pastors, her grandfather died. She had to go to Michigan. Um, and then, I think it was Tuesday... Um, Donnie got news that his uncle died and he and his family had to go to Michigan. And then yesterday I was in Wisconsin doing a memorial service for a long-term friend uh, who recently died. And um, I, I was sitting there thinking through the week and, and sitting at this service getting ready to get up to speak and I was thinking how much I don't like those services in the sense that they're just really hard. But then it dawned on me that in a way, is a really good thing because if those, those events in our lives, as hard as they are, it forces people to slow down from our hectic, entertainment-driven, recreational, motivated lives 
to think about what this all is and where we're going. The first time that ever dawned on me, I was in high school, late in high school, and I remember thinking, what is with this whole life deal? But the problem is a lot of people don't want to ask the questions. They go through life, they're not asking the right questions, or they're afraid of those questions. And there are these inconsistencies because there are people that say there is no God, where there's no meaning to life, we're, we're just evolved animals, and yet they live as if that's not true, as if there is meaning to their life. And then there's inconsistencies with us in the church. We say we believe one thing, we live another. We have to stop and think about these things, what it is we really believe. So hopefully this is helping you think through those issues and... Um, you know, I hope you come to a place in your life where you realize you're, you're not just a bag of chemicals, that you've been created uniquely by a God who loves you, and that you put your faith in him. You put your faith in Jesus, who changed the course of history forever. That's what it means to be a Christian. Believe. Believe. If you signed a card today uh, to get baptized, don't forget to drop it off the information center. And then uh, also this week, I wanna, I wanna encourage you to read the letter of Ephesians another, another time. Sit down and pretend as if Paul is a friend of yours and he is writing you. And so you just read it all the way through like a, a normal letter. And then you go back and I give you permission to reread chapter two. We're gonna move into chapter two. So uh, read that. And next week, I think we might refer to next week's uh, talk as the Apostle Paul and Zombies, something like that. Uh, you say, what are you talking about? Come back next week and I'll explain that to you, okay? I think you'll find it fascinating. So, if you're here and you had, a, you had a rough week, like some of our staff, and you want someone to talk with and pray with, our, our prayer team folks will be down here. Or if you have questions about Christianity, they'd be happy to talk with you as well. Uh, let me pray for us and then we're dismissed. Now, Lord, I pray that as your people leave this building, that we would go recognizing that in Jesus we have been marked with your spirit. May we have a sense of his presence. And his presence then marks us as people of love and praise, hope and truth. May we live our lives in such a way this week that we point people to Jesus. May your hand of grace and peace and strength now rest on your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.